David Chance presents to you the morning meetup. Do you have an idea you need to get off the ground? Are you a small business owner looking to earn supplemental income or replace your current income? Come and join the most amazing mentorship and accountability group for entrepreneurs live with David Shans himself. That's right. This is not pre-recorded and it's not a replay. This is live every morning, Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. Eastern. In addition to the live calls, you also receive a weekly individual Q&A call, a private Facebook community, access to all call replays and access to David's list of resources and contacts you need to be in an environment of success so head over to the morningmeetup.com today for your one dollar seven day trial that's right just one dollar for seven days of access to the morning meetup take massive action towards manifesting your dreams today the morningmeetup.com good morning good evening good afternoon wherever you are whoever you are i'm oliver perry welcome back to the oliver perry show Today, we've got another illustrious guest, as I say every single episode, and I will continue to say every episode. She is a private investor, specifically on passive actions. So we're talking syndications, we're talking multifamily investments, things of that nature. She also runs two, not one, but two different communities (laughs) based around real estate, based around funding. Her name is Alex Brashears, and we're going to get to her right now. But first, we got to do the intro. Are you starting your journey into real estate business or entrepreneurship? Are you in need of strategies to help you reach your daily goals? That's right. Then the Oliver Perry Show is for you. Come and get the experiences and strategies to help you be successful. And now, your host, you know who it is, is. Oliver Perry. Oliver Perry. Alex. Hello. Hello. How you doing, Alex? You feeling okay? I am doing fantastic. Wonderful. I'm excited. I'm excited to get to talk to you today. And it's all about private money and real estate and the passive side of it as well. So let's hop right in. First, did I miss anything? Did I miss anything at all on your intro on your on your introduction? I you think you got it. The only thing you're missing is a military spouse. Oh, that's right. I forgot about the military. How <laughs> dare I forget such a thing? I am sorry. How- Dare you. To, all my, <laughs> to all my military brothers and sisters and their spouses, I apologize. Please forgive me. You can leave me comments in the chat. I will still love you nonetheless. <laughs> all right. So, Alex, you let's first let's talk about your your communities, because I think it's really, really important that even as we get deeper into the private money and the passive investing, that you get to put people onto your communities and how they can reach out and be a part of it. So if you could, please, let's talk about those communities real quick. Yes. So the first one is called Private Lending Lessons. And that one is purely networking and education based. And it's centered around teaching people to both do private lending as an investor and also use private money as an active investor. So that one is 100% free, 100% networking and education based. It's a very, very active group, a very quick growing group. It's almost 5,000 people in a year. So I'm, I'm very proud of that one. Um, And then the other group I run is a group local to Hampton Roads. It's Hampton Roads, multifamily and more. And that one we're focusing exclusively on multifamily assets, whether that's syndication, whether that means a duplex, whatever that happens to mean. It's a lot of education and learning and networking in the local community here of Hampton Roads. I love it. As a matter of fact, multifamily and more is one of my favorite uh, kind of platforms. I know it's ran by uh, Jamie Gruber who's a mentor of mine. 
Love me some Groover. Shout out to Jamie Groover out there. I'm sure he's listening and watching somewhere out in the ether. So, all right, let's just go straight to the private money and the and the passive investing. First, what got you to the point where you were able to private invest? What was that kicker for you where you said, you know what, uh, I can do this now? It would be uh, lots of trial and error. So as a military spouse, I've moved 19 times in 20 years. And as most just of your viewers now? know, uh, 19, just 19. Just 19 um, but uh, as most of your viewers know, in real estate, it's a slow moving asset. It's not like a stock where you can buy it in the morning and sell it in the afternoon. Right. So if you're only going to be living somewhere for you know three months, six months, maybe a year, that makes it really hard to be an active investor to hit the ground, you know, find a property, do the renovation, get it sold, you know, even if you're refinancing it and going to do the burr, it just isn't very practical, especially if you're not going to live there ever again, you know. So we've we've done that, we tried that, we did not want to do that again. So we thought about, you know, what's going to be a style of investing that fits with our lifestyle because ultimately that's that's what we're all doing this for. You know, we're we're investing, we're reaching out for financial independence because we want to live the lifestyle that we want. You know, we want that free choice. And I think a lot of people when they get started in real estate, you know, they're like, "Oh, I'm going to get 20 doors and that's going to make me financially independent." But they don't have a conversation with themselves as does 20 doors of ownership actually get you to the goals that you have. And a lot of times it's not so much that they want 20 doors, it's they want the financial independence, they want the geographical independence to basically do what they want when they want. They don't they don't want the 20 doors. That's just how it kind of equates in their brain. That's a really good point. That's a very good point. As a matter of fact, when I started in multifamily because my goal is still 625 doors within the 4 years before I retire, right? And I thought, okay, you know, I was gonna, it's gonna bring in this amount, so on and so forth. But you have to take into account, you have a two percent stake or a three percent stake, four percent, whatever that number is. And in your head, you think, oh, it's, it's a huge deal. But unless you're pulling off 400, 500 units a piece, it's not as big as you always think. It's just a matter of accumulation and slow burn, like you said. It's, it's just real estate. It's just slow. It's just how it works. But yeah, I, I think that point that you made is is a very, very good point that people have to pay attention to and listen to. And hopefully they took something from that and they can learn from that. So with that said, when someone talks to you about a let's start with multifamily deal with a multifamily deal as a uh, as a LP. What are the things that you're looking to hear? Matter of fact, let's how about this. Give me three things that you'd like to hear. Let's give a number to it. Three things you want to hear when somebody's presenting a deal to you that's going to make or break if you invest. For me personally, deals for multifamily syndications kind of broadly break out into two categories. There are those deals that favor a high equity multiple, and there are those deals that favor a higher cash on cash return. And then obviously the IRR is somewhere in the middle, depending on how long the hold term is and, and all of those things. Right. So I am a cash flow investor. If you know doing private lending didn't give that away. <laughs> so I am looking for something that's got a higher cash on cash return. Mm -hmm. I'm not paying a significant amount of attention to the um, equity multiple because I want something that's going to be stabilized or pretty close to stabilized at the beginning. I want you know cash flow from day one. 
That's just me personally. That's how I like to invest. And I know a lot of new investors to syndications, they're just going to look at those three numbers on the pitch deck and they're just going to go, okay, yeah, this one's got all three of the highest numbers. I'm going to go with this deal when they don't really realize that the numbers they're being presented are 100% made up. And I don't necessarily mean made up in the ability that they're being lied to, but they have no legal obligation to meet those numbers. Those are literally a pro forma and expectation of what's going to happen. You know, the building could entirely burn down two months after you take it over and then your pro forma is out the window. So I, I really caution investors from just looking at the numbers. Um, so that that's me personally. I like a higher cash on cash return. I want a stabilized property. My second one is that I want an operator that is very transparent, that's friendly, forthcoming. You know, I want to be able to jump on a call with them and, and feel like I'm getting the answers that I need, that they're, they're not kind of holding back. Because you're basically kind of stuck with them for the length of the time they hold that asset, whether it's three years, five years, seven years, 10 years, you know, they are going to be around in charge of your money for that length of time. So it needs to be someone that I'm comfortable talking to. Um, I know a lot of people put a lot of stress on, you know, you want an operator that's gone a full cycle and that's great. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I, again, it goes back to their transparency, their willingness to talk, you know, their ability to kind of work with their passive investors and realize what their passive investors want. So for me, it's all about the operator and cash on cash return. Ah, so it sounds, it sounds just like when uh, some of the bigger entrepreneurs, shall we say, they'll say, we bet on the jockey, not on the horse. Not and, and 100%. And that's exactly what that sounds like to me, because that's, that. Is just the right way because if they're communicating with you, you know everything that's going on. You understand. You can say, "Hey, I'm with. I'm okay with this. I'm not. Hey, here's maybe something you should do, or even provide help because your money's at line too, just like everybody else's." So, you know, it's always good to have that transparency. That's awesome. Okay, so, man, so at this point, what was your goal when you started doing the private private lending? Because I know you said you talked about looking specifically for cash flow, but was it a number? Or was it, hey, I just want freedom for myself and the family. I want to retire my husband, the family. I want to buy a Bentley. I, I doubt I doubt that's the case, but I'm just saying whatever <laughs> whatever it might be. What was what was the goal for you to do that? I'm more a Ford truck girl. So if I'm gonna I buy like an it. expensive car, that's gonna be it. Um, like it. But frankly, it's military spouses in general, even before COVID, had a serious problem with mm-hmm underemployment or unemployment, and then COVID did us no favors. Um, So a lot of military spouses tend to be very well educated. And if they are employed, they tend to be very underemployed, uh, generally not using the college degree they have, for example. So for me, a big, I guess, motivator was that I wanted to be able to contribute to my household financially. But it also had to be in a way that if my spouse got stationed somewhere else and I was willing to go, that I wanted that ability to pick up and go and not start over because I've started over way too many times. And I'm frankly, I'm getting too old for that. You know, I'm in one of those one of those moments like Mel Gibson and Danny Glover in uh, Lethal Weapon. Like, yeah, at this point, I've admitted to myself, I'm too old for that. I don't want to do that anymore. So it really became a process of, okay. If I don't want to continue to look for a job and convince strangers that I'm worthy of hiring for the next six months, you know, what are my other options? So my other options were investing and starting a business. 
Right. Again, going back to, we've had long-term rentals. We were miserable. We hated it. Not going there again. So what's our alternatives? You know, what allows us to have the geographical freedom the Navy's going to require of us, but also be involved in real estate? So private lending was actually kind of a happy marriage between those two things because I can be anywhere in the world as long as I have electricity and internet access. I can do, you know, do, you know, analysis on the property. I can do due diligence on the borrower. You know, as long as I have those, those comfort levels with the market that I'm investing in or the people I'm investing in, you know, I could do that from anywhere in the world. Interesting. So basically it's just a matter of making sure that the model fit for you is really what happened. But yes, you, like yes. many, many real estate entrepreneurs had to find out the hard way. <laughs> it's as if we all we all just go through something random and just say, I'm never doing that again. Uh, for me, I think it was flips. I realized there's no way I'm getting to 165, I'm sorry, 125 doors in four years after I did my first flip. It was a nightmare. I was like, no, this is this isn't this isn't the way to go. I'm gonna have to do duplexes, quads or something. This is not working. So that's interesting. That's amazing. So with that said, your how does that work with you and your husband? Because your husband's still in, right? He's still doing his thing on the military side with the Navy. Underway, I'm sh- God forbid he goes underway anytime today or next week. But, you know, you still have that out there. How does he fit that into that equation? Is that a conversation that you guys have? And how does that work from there? As far as he's not actively involved in the real estate side of things, that was his choice. Um He'll help here and there, but that's just, that's not his, like, he just, that's you, you know, you do that. <laughs> so, you know, we had a conversation about investing. He knew what the goal was that we wanted some additional passive income coming in. He's past that 20 year mark where, you know, the quote unquote golden handcuffs have been broken. So at any point he could just kind of say, you know what, I'm done and I've made it as far as I want to make it or no, I don't want to move there. So I'm just going to put in my retirement paperwork So we were basically starting that transition period to go from a military family to a veteran family. And this was just part of that transition. Absolutely. That makes absolute sense. Uh, And what's great is about being able to do a live format is we get to get comments every now and then, Alex. And today we got a comment from Mr. Josh Blodgett. And he absolutely agree with you. Always follow a system when it comes to your real estate stuff and just business in general. So I love the fact that, uh, like you said, that, that that's the case. So now with that said, let's talk a little bit about your, the, the private money part of it, because this is a really big thing. And for a lot of newbie investors and even some experienced investors, they always seem to have a hard time finding LPs, finding, you know, private money and things of that nature. But the rule is always, teachers will always tell us, oh, it, it, use other people's money, OPM, OPM, OPM. <laughs> But nobody says, hey, you need to go here and find these folks. Where would you recommend people? Well, not even where I recommend. How do you find private money? How is money, private money find to be found out there? Because you're quite deep into that part of it. It usually starts with your own community. And a lot of people really hate when I say that because they're like, oh, you know, I don't I don't know anybody that's got two hundred thousand dollars laying around. Well, you don't know anybody yet. That just means Mm. it's time to start building your community. And some people may not necessarily identify as a private lender. So they might have, you know, $100,000 sitting in a self-directed IRA. And, you know, they think the only way to invest in that IRA is, you know, mutual funds. But then you start talking about your real estate. You start educating them on the possibilities of what they could do with that IRA. 
And then suddenly they're like, yeah, oh yeah, this makes sense. You know, you know, is there some way you could use a hundred thousand dollars? Because I would love to make that grow at more than something like 4% a year. You know, if you could do something more than 4% a year, I'm happy. So they might not necessarily start out with the label of private lender, but they can easily kind of develop that relationship and that, you know, once they've done one successful transaction, you know, they're more likely to just remain faithful and go, okay, you know, you got me my money back. What's the next deal? Let's do another one. Let's do another one. Right. It tends to be very relationship based. So it's, it's really going to be a matter of talking to your network, whether that's friends and family, whether that's other investors in the community. Uh, you know, it really should be people that have an abundance mindset. So if you have other real estate investors in the community and you ask them, do you know anybody that does private lending? You know, if it's somebody that's like, oh yeah, no, I'm not giving you my sources, my secrets, you know, to me, that's not, that's not someone you want to work with. You know, it's, it's really, I mean, it just really, that's what it boils down to. It needs to be someone that is forthcoming with information, but it's also a relationship with them. So if their private lender and them don't have a great relationship, that might be reason why, you know, they don't want to give up the information, but it's always great to at least have a conversation because the nice thing about private lending is also the curse of private lending in that it is very flexible. So the way I do private lending is going to be somewhat different or maybe totally different from a way uh, another person does private lending. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's, um, I, I've always heard, and I looked at the side because I'm remembering some things right now. I've had some conversations with people that say, oh, I'm not going to I'm not going to tell you what I'm doing with this this, and this. I'm not going to tell you the percentage or whatever it is. And it's like, come on, man. Like, (laughs) I I understand things are tough. I get it. But what people fail sometimes to realize is that multifamily in particular and even single family, it's a it's a lot easier with a team. I promise you it's a lot easier with a team because that moment, particularly in single family, when you get that phone call and a tub has to be replaced and you don't have a general contractor call or you don't have somebody on the team to take care of it, guess who's got to take their behind over there and pull that tub out and fix it? <laughs> and I've done it, and it sucks. It's not something you want to do at all. Absolutely. But I just said this secret squirrel stuff. Absolutely, Joseph. So um, so with that said, you know, you've been through this role quite a bit. You've done a lot of deals when it comes to private money and and just multifamily and, and syndications and all that great stuff. When you give out the information, because you are also, because you're a community leader, so you're technically a coach as well. What is your guidance to people when they first start? What are the rules that you tell them to follow? Hey, you should do this, this, and this when they're first coming into the group and they're first looking to learn and understand private investing or passive investing. I would, I would 100% tell people that they need to stop and think about what they are trying to accomplish. Because for example, on the syndication side, I see a lot of LP investors, they'll go, oh, I'm going to invest as an LP for a couple of deals. I'm going to learn the ropes and then I'm going to jump to the GP side. And they somehow view that GP side as like the higher, better level, like they're going to graduate to this. And I'm like, that's a lot of responsibility. You know, do you want to sit in on weekly asset manager meetings? Do you want to fly to the property once or twice a year to do due diligence walkthroughs? Do you want to have to negotiate with lenders? Do you want to have to have conversations with property managers, fire a property management company? You know, like there's a lot of physical responsibilities that you have as a GP, not even legal. We're just ignoring all of that. 
So when I see people that have that kind of mentality that they want to graduate to something next, graduate to something bigger, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but they really need to stop and think about why do they want that? Do they just want that because they think that's the way to success, that going from LP to GP is the way to success? Then that might not fit with their goals because if their goals is to leave their W-2 job to have more time freedom and more geographical freedom, being a GP of like a thousand doors is not necessarily going to get you there depending on your role in the GP team. So I really tell people, new people, like, why do you want to invest passively? What are you trying to gain? You know, if you're trying to gain knowledge and experience, that's great. And you want to move on to something else, that's fantastic. But whatever that something else is, needs to jive with what you want to do and what your skills are and what your personality is. Mm. And you said something there that's key. And I'm going to give you the ding. Yeah, because that ding there... (laughs) is absolutely when you said they people need to understand what they're good at that i have seen can make or break people when it comes to entrepreneurship and definitely in real estate more over than anything else because if you're not a great at underwriting and you underwrite a deal and then you go and find the rest of the team and the deal falls apart because the underwriting was bad they're all going to look at the same person right and they're going to look at you because you were supposed to be the underwriter but it's just amazing how many people don't realize that they should know some more about themselves and how to figure that part out. So matter of fact, with that said, how do you, cause again, you're a coach. So how do you tell the people that you're working with, Hey, you know, you got to figure out what you're good at. And then what's your guidance on how they figure that out and they discover what they're good at or what they're bad at. You're going to laugh at this, but I tell people to figure out what their risk tolerance is. And they're like, oh, how do I do that? And I'm like, just think of various scenarios and whatever gives you what I call the pucker factor where you're like, e, <laughs> then you've reached your risk tolerance threshold. So think yeah. of the various things that could go wrong and how you could structure things. And if, you know, at any point your little, bra- your little brain goes, e, then mm-hmm. you've reached a risk tolerance threshold. So then at that point, it's time to go, okay. Why did I have that reaction? Is it because it legitimately is above my risk tolerance? Is it legitimately because I don't understand the risk? So I'm just automatically going to say no. You know, is it something where I'm just like, that doesn't sound like anything I want to accomplish ever in life? You know, and so it's really a conversation you have with yourself. And even if you, I have other people are like, well, I don't know what I don't know. Okay, well then fantastic. Sit down to talk to somebody who's doing the style of real estate investing you want to do whether that's active or passive. And instead of everybody sits down with those people and they think, okay, you know, give me the pro tips. How do I find a good contractor? How do I do this? How do I do that? What they don't ask is why did you choose the style of investing? What do you like about it? What do you hate about it? If you could go back, what would you do differently? You know, and they, they ask the mechanical questions, but not so much the, what I'll call the philosophical questions which I think could be far more valuable to a newbie, you know, that they'll sit there and they'll take all the notes, you know, make sure you check the tax records and do this and title and all of these other things when they're not asking someone in front of them who might've been doing this for five, 10, 20 years, you know, from your experience, you know, what do you like about this style of investing? What has you benefited? You know, what would you like to move into? What do you wish you have done? You know, not even the mechanics of what do you wish you have done? What do you wish you knew sooner? Um, And I think those are very valuable conversations above and beyond just the mechanics of how you do it. That's a very, very good point. That's a very good point. We've got another question from a viewer, Josh Blodgett, out with all the questions today, and I love it. He asks, what are your average ROR on your properties? 
I'm going to assume that's return he's asking for, ROR on property. Because yeah. I don't actually own the properties. I'm on the debt side of the, the equation, not the equity side. Um, I would say for a second lien position, if I'm doing second liens, those are anywhere between 10% and 12% flat, and they will have the money for three to four months. So theoretically, you could roll that capital over you know, three, four times in the year, each time being 10 and 12%. The first lien position, average private money, depending on your market and uh, the deal, could be anywhere between 8 and I've seen 14% for first lien positions um, for somebody that's brand new. So it really just depends on the deal, you know, what the terms are of that deal. So, for example, I know some private lenders, myself included, they will say you don't have to do monthly interest payments because the loan length is so short. But in exchange for that, we're going to charge a higher interest rate. So if you want to make monthly payments, it's going to be 10%. If you don't want to make monthly payments, it's going to be 12%. So there's a lot of different things that you can negotiate with private lending that can be far more beneficial to both you as an active investor and as a passive investor that have nothing to do with interest rate. A lot of, a lot of investors on both sides really zero in on that interest rate when there's so many other, you know, things that need to be kind of hammered out with this loan other than the interest rate. Interesting. Yeah. He was at Josh actually asked as well as, as you were saying that, is that considered high? Um, but I, I think part of what you said kind of gave him that feedback that he was looking for. So that makes absolute sense. That's a great answer. Great question, Josh. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you stopping by. So Alex, you, it's just, I don't know, the, the fact that you've got so much going on, you've got your investing going on, you've got your uh, invest passive to live active. If Matter of fact, if you are on IG, go to invest passive to live active. A lot of the stuff Axe is telling you now is actually broken down into tidbits there. And you can kind of it, it's a great free resource to go and learn and find some more things you got to research and look at. It's all great information that she has on there. So definitely, definitely, please go check it out. Um, back into the interview part of this. So, <laughs> so Alex, with your, with your experience, with all the things that you've done, what's the next thing for you? Where do you want to go next in your passive investing journey? I really, really enjoy education of, you know, if running a group didn't give that away. So I would like to run some sort of education platform that's a little bigger than the current one I have. Um, I'd love to do more live speaking engagements to kind of bring private lending and passive investing to the forefront, right. because I feel like a lot of people go, oh, I'm just a passive investor. And it's like, no, you're an investor, just like the people that are going out there and tracking down the deals. You're just on a different part of the deal. So the the new real estate investors, and we were talking about this, I think, before we started really going live, the new real estate investors are generally presented with only two options. You are either going to be a landlord or you're going to be a fix and flipper like they do on HGTV. And then after you do one of those two things and you realize how miserable it is, they open the doors <laughs> to this like buffet of all these other options that are out there, you know, buying and selling notes and land deals and tax deeds. And then just, I mean, unlimited ways to invest in real estate that are not fix and flip and landlord. Right. So I feel like if I could bring to the forefront to new investors, more options other than fix and flip and buy and hold, that it would attract more people to real estate and specifically more women because this group that I run is actually over half women. 
And if anybody's been to a live event for real estate, you will realize that is not the demographic, um, you know, that's at a live event. And the women that are there generally are not owners. They are, you know, they're in some sort of support role. So they're the realtor. They're not the investor. You know, they're the loan processor. They're not the lender. So I'm, I'm also kind of on a mini crusade to get more women involved in real estate. And I think the fact that this group is half women, it really speaks to the fact that passive investing can be something that women can take on, even though they have a full-time job, even though they have a full-time family, even though they're helping to run the house, you know, whatever those time constraints are, they're not taking on another tornado in the midst of the storm they currently live in. Because a lot of us just don't have the time to go and find a contractor. Absolutely. We don't want to talk to people at 2 a.m. That's a distressed seller that's about to go into foreclosure and they want to talk to somebody. That's not going to be me. Please don't call me at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to sleep right through it. So I think passive investing and private lending is something that can be brought to the forefront as an option for real estate investors earlier on in the conversation. And that makes the whole community more prosperous. We're basically taking money from Wall Street and bringing it back to Main Street because me as an investor, I'm getting monthly income. You as an active investor, my borrower, are getting capital to potentially take on take, take down more deals than you can with your own capital. So it's a win-win cycle as far as I'm concerned. No, that's I think you're 100% right. It's really, really interesting. And you see it more now than I think any other time that I can remember with real estate investing because you've got people who are learning wholesaling and then they're learning flipping thinking, okay, this is my, this is my entry level. I have to come in this way. And yes, you can do that. Wholesaling sucks. <laughs> Wholesaling is rough. Flipping is rough. Uh, buying and holding isn't bad in my opinion, personally, but you know, they do open up, like you said, they open up a literal door into the world of real estate investing and the rabbit hole gets deep from there because people think, Hey, I can't develop when I first start. You can develop from day one. If you chose choose to, you just have to figure out how to do it, right? You can, just like you said, passive invest from day one. Yes, you're probably not gonna be working with much. Yes, you might have to figure out how to make that happen, but you can make it happen. You just have to decide to go do it. So, and and on top of that, you know, your, your comment in regards to the women in real estate, I have seen that. And it's it's so confusing because on the when you look at the real estate agent side of the house, Real estate agents, for the most part in the nation, I think are at 40, 53% versus the guys. But when you go to real estate investing meetups and conferences, you'll see one or two women there, tops. And it's like, what's what what's going on? Where Where is everybody at? But for you to open up that, that lane, I think that's amazing and that's awesome because I've got two girls who need to learn real estate investing and guess where I'm sending them when that time comes. So I think, I think you having that platform is fantastic and it's great that you do have that platform. Now, what was the worst, I'd like to know the worst investing experience you've had so far because what people don't understand is <laughs> even as you're going through it, even once you become the best of the best, the greatest investor in the world, there's always something you're still learning. So as an LP, you run into experiences where this worked, but this didn't work. What was the worst kind of experience that you had as an LP? And then what's your advice for people to when they run into that kind of thing? So this didn't directly happen to me. It happened to a good friend of mine that is an LP. And it really kind of opened my eyes to the ability for this to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, they were invested in seven deals. Uh, they invested in the middle of 2020 in their seventh deal. 
And I happened to catch up with them right around Christmas towards, you know, the end of 2020. And I was talking to them about their deals and how did this one end up doing? How did that one end up doing? And five of their seven deals, they didn't get a single distribution in 2020. And her husband actually lost his job in 2020, uh, thanks to COVID. So right when they needed the capital the most is when the capital dried up, when they needed that income stream. And I happened to catch up with her about two weeks ago, which is what made me think of this. And I was asking her again, you know, like what's going on? Her husband has a job now, thankfully. And, but five of the seven are still not distributing returns as they were supposed to. And when she kind of dove in there, uh, a couple of the deals were the same operator. The operators basically ghosted the LP investors. Again, there's no kind of legal requirement to, you know, answer their phone calls or emails. And then, um, yeah. Oh yeah. I got some stories there. Um, And then uh, a couple of the deals, they plan on starting distributions back up uh, the middle of this year. So a couple of her deals will start getting income. So, I mean, when she originally thought, you know, she was going to have seven deals that were giving her quarterly dividends and she managed to space it out where basically she was going to be getting some sort of income check every single month because of the the quarter that that particular property was distributing dividends. Um, You know, it just didn't turn out that way. It happened to just be at a perfect storm moment when her household lost significant income. She also lost that passive income. So that's why I really caution investors when they look at those pro forma numbers and they watch the pitch deck. It's it's not about investing to get the highest return on your dollar. It's about investing in the people that you think can execute the business plan that they're putting forward to the best of their ability. Wow. That's wow. That's that's super sound advice at the tail end there. Yeah. I, I like that. That was good. <laughs> that was very good. I'm gonna have to write that down later on. Uh, so <laughs> let me ask this, Alex. Let me ask this. With, with investing and all the guidance that you give people and all that great stuff, when people are starting to get into the private lending, how do they educate themselves? Because you are super smart when it comes to 506B, 506C, CF, all these amazing funds and changing with the SEC and how money's moving and tiny homes and all this other random stuff. How are you educating yourself to this level? Like, how do people educate? Where should they be going to learn more about what's going on on the passive side of the house? It's going to be, it's going to sound terrible, but it's networking events. When you can go to these, you know, free webinars that people are hosting. If you listen to a podcast, so like one of my favorite things to do is I listen to podcasts when I go run. And I'll kind of earmark certain podcasts that I want to reach out to these people. Because at the at the end of all these podcasts, the guests always come and say, like, here's how to get a hold of me. Here's my website. Here's my LinkedIn profile. You know, here's all this information. And I can speak from this from personal experience. Very few people actually end up ultimately reaching out to you. But the whole reason we're out there on podcasts and doing shows like this is because we want people to talk to us. We want people to be educated about what we're passionate about. So I literally just started reaching out to people on podcasts and I would book a call or I'd go on their website or I'd find all the podcast episodes I could that, you know, were done by that person. And you just start stitching stuff together like, oh, I'll end up down this rabbit hole. I ended up down this rabbit hole of the infinite banking system last summer. And Mm -hmm. every podcast episode I could find by this one speaker, I was like, I got to listen to this and listen to this and listen to this. Um, But that's that's just how I personally learn. So I'm I'm really one of those people like, I love to talk to other people. So I'm going to be like, hey, can I jump on a call with you? You know, if it's not COVID, can I get you coffee? Can we go chat? 
because I think you're going to learn a lot more in that real life conversation than you are. I'm not saying go in there blind and don't read anything, don't look up anything, but at least if you have some baseline knowledge, you're going to learn a lot more having that one-on-one interaction where, you know, like we were talking about earlier, you could go back to them and say, what do you, why do you like investing in this way? You know, what have you learned? What would you do differently? You're not going to necessarily get that out of a book or reading a blog article or watching a video on YouTube. Very true. Very true. Very true. And it's, it's amazing because when, even when you look at the YouTube and you do all that great stuff, it's great to be able to get on a phone call with somebody and have a, at least a low level knowledge of what they're talking about. So you can ask educated questions and not say something crazy like, oh, so h- how do you do this? Right. Because the, like there's, there's not enough time in the day. It happens like all the time. Somebody will book a half hour phone call and I'll send them the link to like, here's videos, watch these before you, you know, jump on a phone call. So, you know, it makes that 30 minutes more valuable for you. But routinely I'll get someone jump on the phone call and be like, okay, how do I do private lending? And I'm like, so you want me to explain this to you in 30 minutes or less? This is not pizza. It's investing, you know? So. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's, matter of fact, with that said, let's segue into some, some basic passive investing stuff. Let's talk about the funds. Alex, give me a breakdown on the your your favorite funds and how they work. This way, when somebody calls you, this is where they start. So if you're listening or you're watching, Alex is going to give this to you. I want you to call her, message her, DM her, whatever you got to do. And this is where you start the conversation. All right, Alex, go for it. As far as putting together a fund or investing in a fund? Ooh, let's go both. Let's go, let's okay. go investing in a fund first, and then we'll say putting together a fund after that. As far as being a passive investor in a fund, I would say the important thing is to really understand what they are investing in because a lot of funds are what's called a blind pool fund. So basically you are buying the operator's skill set. They don't have a property identified. Uh, Maybe it's a debt pool. You know, they're going to go around and turn around and use these funds to do mortgages like someone like myself would. So at that point, it's really about the operator's skill, you know, their knowledge base, their relationships, their track record. Whereas if you are trying to put together a fund, that's completely different because at that point, a lot of your concern is going to be centered around regulation and what you think is saleable to passive investors. Just because something's legal does not mean you're going to get a lot of bites on that particular bait. So you kind of have to find that happy medium between what's going to be approved by regulation, what's legal by regulation, and also what is a passive investor likely to actually want to invest in? Is it something, is it simple enough that they're going to understand it? Is it safe enough that they're going to want to invest? Um, You know, is it going to, is the asset or the method that you're going to promise these returns, is it actually going to generate those returns? If you tell someone, oh, I have a 12% preferred return rate, but you're investing in something that's not going to generate or spin off 12% or better, you know, you're automatically setting yourself up for failure. So I think it really comes down to understanding what you are investing in. Like, and if you don't, and you start asking the operator questions and they get snippy about it, that's not your, that's not the person you want to be in business with. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. That's excellent advice. That's excellent advice, Alex. So for those of you who are watching, listening, if you got any questions, please feel free to ask. We're going to move into the segments part before we close things out. And if you have questions at the end of the segments, I'll make sure I ask Alex, Josh, I do have your question on the 14% ROI. I'll ask her, or sorry, ROR uh, rate of return. And I'll ask Alex hear that in a second. But in the meantime, 
Alex, we're going to go into the section where we just, there's two segments, two questions that I ask every guest. At least I try to. Sometimes I forget. Father, forgive me. First question is what we call a troop to task. It's where you give the listener or viewer one thing that they can do right now to start down the path that you've already gone down. And I'm going to give the floor to you. First thing is decide what you want from life. Absolutely. Like, and don't be vague about it. Like literally sit down and go, I want to spend more time with my children. Okay. How much time do you want to be with them 24 seven? Do you want to be able to put them on the bus and, you know, pick them up from the bus? You know, what does that actually look like? So that's going to be task number one, because what you're actually going for, you basically start working backwards and go, okay, if I want to be home, you know, till eight thirty, nine o'clock in the morning to put my kids on the bus. And I want to be home by three or four o'clock to greet them when they come home. What can I do? What style of investing? What sort of business can I run between the hours of nine and three? Okay, here's my options here. And you just keep working that process backwards, but it always starts with the end goal in mind. Jesus, Alex. <laughs> that's a, uh, holy moly. That's absolutely <laughs> great excellent advice i've had i've heard that several times i haven't heard it put in such a concise and easy to hear way like that's that's the way it should be look at that end goal in mind and go after that end goal now we'll go into the last question this last question is a little is a toughie right so the question is alex if you if man what question do you wish you were asked more often. I was trying to find a new way to put it. It just wasn't working. But what question do you wish you were asked more often? And what's the answer to that question? Why should I do why should I do private lending and passive investing? I don't get asked that. They're just like, oh, I want to do it. And nobody ever asks why. So I would say 100% ask why. Why do you want to do private lending? Why do you want to do passive investing? Because the answer to that question is going to guide you in which direction you want to go, whether it is private lending and you're on exclusively the debt side of the equation, whether you want to do passive investing and maybe you're on both sides. Maybe you're just on the equity side instead of being on the debt side. Maybe you're on both the debt and equity. So I would definitely start there. I mean, that's that's a question I wish more people asked from the get-go is, why do you want to do private lending and passive investing? Wow. And and if I remember correctly, your particular answer to the why was because you want to be able to invest and still be able to move around with the military and things of that nature without being encumbered, which makes absolute sense. So we're going to go into the, the last piece of it is the Q&A. And earlier, Josh, uh, Josh Blodgett asked about the rate of return. And his last question was, is 14% considered high when it comes to rate of return? I would say no, that's about average if you're looking at it from an annualized perspective um, for the loan. So for example, if you charge two origination points and then you have a 12% annualized return, that's 14% if they have the loan out for an entire 12 months. You know, think of it if they kept the loan out for six months, you know, you're going to collect that 6%, you know, interest only payments, you know, over those six months, you're still going to get your 2%. Uh, origination points, but then if you roll the money over again to another loan, that's another 2%, you know, origination points, and then another 6% for another six months. So I feel like, in the, especially in the first lien position, 14% over the annualized basis is not out of the realm of possibility. It's very easy if you are someone that wants to be able to lend in the second lien position, 
So behind a first mortgage, whether it's hard money, uh, conventional money, whatever that looks like, um, 14% annualized is very easy to get to in the second lien position, but obviously you're also taking on increased risk. But first lien, yeah, 14% is is definitely doable. Mm, I like it. Josh, I hope that helped for whatever question you had. If you had anything else, uh, please feel free to message Alex once this is all over, said and done. Until then, don't go anywhere. As a matter of fact, I need you to slap the like or something. I don't know what, what platform you're on, Josh. I think it's Facebook. Just leave a comment, something outside of this one. <laughs> Shameless plug. All right. So, so Alex, if you could please give the listener and viewer how they can get a hold of you, how they can reach out to you and be able to talk to you directly. Absolutely. So the group that I run that teaches people about private lending and passive investing is called Private Lending Lessons. Again, that's on Facebook. So feel free to reach out and join that group. I'm in that group all the time. Uh, you'll see me on there all the time. I post all the, all the discussion points daily. And then we actually have uh, daily or weekly educational events. So I'm hosting those weekly educational events. And then usually after the speaker's done, we stick around for another five to 15 minutes doing just some virtual networking, getting to know each other. So that's a perfect golden opportunity to learn more one-on-one with other people that are doing it. I'm also on LinkedIn. So you can just look me up, Alex Brashears on LinkedIn. And my URL actually is uh, my personal mantra of I invest passively to live actively. So, you know, tons and tons of opportunities out there. That was my way of narrowing things down is how much time is this going to take? Whereas a lot of people will look at things and go, how much capital is this going to take? Like, okay, I can find the capital. I'm sure I can find the capital, but I can't necessarily manufacture the time. So that's why I look at things that way. <laughs> I'm so, listen, this is one of those interviews where I'm so excited to get to the end because I get to talk to Alex a little bit afterwards. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being a part of this. I hope you truly enjoyed. I hope Alex got the opportunity to give you a whole lot of value. Please, please, please reach out to her, follow her, support her on LinkedIn, on IG, on Facebook, and wherever you see Alex, go check her out, listen to her, see if you learn from her. And hopefully, if you do learn, Call her. Maybe she'll, you know, she'll be giving you some private investing. You know, you might need that little bit of help. Anyway, so I'm Oliver Perry. You can find me at the Oliver Perry on IG. You can look up the Oliver Perry show on YouTube. If you're on YouTube, make sure you like, comment and subscribe right now. We will see you again next time. Remember, you're better than you were, but you're not half as good as you're going to be. Thank you so much for coming. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to The Oliver Perry Show. Be sure to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. And as always, be sure to follow Oliver at The Oliver Perry on Instagram, Oliver Perry on LinkedIn, and The Oliver Perry Show on YouTube. Until next time, take care.